The year is 10 Baktun, 15 Katun, 9 Tun, 11 Winal, 11 Keen, or if you prefer, May 18th, 1135 AD, and things, well, they kind of suck. Your name is Apo, which means father of nations, and what a joke that is. The only thing you've fathered in your life is a nation's worth of ceramic bowls. You are a potter in the mercantile economy of the Toltec people in the city of Tolan, and it certainly wasn't your childhood dream, but here you are. What you really wanted was to be part of the military, conquering foreign lands, subjugating other tribes, and you could parade around in that fancy uniform provided by the city-state government. You would have been feared and revered by the masses as you strode along the avenue with atlatl in hand and a metallic butterfly shield across your chest. Your foreman sees you daydreaming again and mockingly shouts that you had better start subjugating that wet clay into the shape of a bull because we have an imperial quota to meet. It was a joke to many, but you had genuine hopes that you would make it as a warrior, even though you were not part of the warrior class. It wasn't unusual for commoners to get a crack at a slightly higher station if they showed prowess in terms of courage, intelligence, or natural leadership, but you had not quite made the mark. You were caught in the middle of being too smart for bull-making, but deemed not quite sharp enough to get where you wanted to go in life. And you're not the only one. There are a growing lot of you who are stuck toiling away at the mundane, which gives you far too much to think. And what, pray tell, does a simple bull-maker's thoughts consist of? You think about the injustice of your plight. You think about the careless decisions of your rulers. And sometimes, you even think about rebellion. Resources are getting tight. Sometimes there's not even enough wood to kiln the clay pots you make or paint to decorate them with. The water supply has been in tenuous relationship in this arid terrain, and with more and more people living here, there's less and less to go around. Even food is running short, and that's definitely the job of the ruler, to feed his people. Now, to clarify, the ruler is well-fed, and so are the priestly class, as well as the other elite members of society. The military is fed and ready for war at all times, but the commoners like you, well, you get what's left over, and most of the time it just isn't enough. There's not even that many people living here compared to other city-states. There's only about sixty to 70,000 people. How could your decision-making be any worse than what's happening now? Your thoughts are interrupted by the all-too-familiar desperate cries coming from outside. Looking out the window, you see people being dragged through the streets, openly weeping and helpless. They are the captives from a nearby tribe who were either bought or just plain taken from their homes to be sacrificed at the temple later this week. It's a good haul, there's at least a hundred of them, and those sacrifices are needed to please the gods and keep the world from ending. There's something about this that just doesn't sit well with you. Yeah, if they were soldiers captured in battle, that's one thing. I mean, they signed up for battle, knowing that they could be taken prisoner by another army. But these were civilians. Women. Children. And it occurs to you that these are people who are not unlike yourself. They didn't ask for this. They're just trying to live their lives, and now they're caught up in a religious ceremony that makes victim out of them. They are bound and mistreated, but worst of all, they know their fate. They know that there is no escape from it, and that no one is coming to help them. You feel a connection to them, and an empathy of sorts made possible by all of the time that you have had to think while mindlessly crafting mediocre ceramics for mass consumption. Your foreman smashes a bowl that you decorated just yesterday against the wall, right where you're standing, and tells you to go join the sacrificial captives if you aren't going to get it together and crank out some more bowls. 
Uh, if it were up to you, you would just burn it all down. The Toltecs were prominent between 900 AD and 1150 AD in the region now known as Hidalgo, Mexico, some 50 miles north of Mexico City. They're a kind of mystery as we aren't sure if they are a kingdom or an empire due to conflicting information that is available. The Aztecs would have us believe that the Toltec were the greatest civilization of expert artisans and craftsmen, and that the Aztecs have a direct lineage to the Toltec people. The name Toltec comes from the term Toltecatl, which means master craftsman, and the Aztecs claim that the Toltecs were the source and summit of all artistry and craftwork, including pottery, stonework, metallurgy, and so on. The Toltec were actually part Chichimeca, which is a pejorative term for various northern tribes people known for their ferocity and warlike tendencies. The literal translation for Chichimeca is people of dog lineage, so that should give us a clue as to how other neighboring tribes felt about them. It kind of makes me think of the Christian term sons of bitches used to describe pagans who often pictorially represented themselves with pregnant dogs as a sign of fertility. Anyhow, fortunately for the Toltec, they were also part Nonoalca, which, as legend has it, is a southern tribe that was known for their sophistication and refinement. Out of these two peoples came the Toltec, the pinnacle of civilization, the masters of craftsmanship, revered by the Aztecs and many other city-states alike. But the story of the Toltec can be broken into two parts, which are the realities and the fables. Let's start with a few realities. The Toltec worshipped the god Quetzalcoatl, who, if you recall, is the feathered serpent we met way back in Olmec times around 1600 BC. They have a temple dedicated to Quetzalcoatl, and bells should be ringing so loud in your head right now, because we've seen this at least two other places in our journey, which were Teotihuacan and Chichen Itza. It is believed that they founded the cult of Quetzalcoatl as a formalized religion, though he has obviously been recognized for millennia prior to their founding. Similar to the Chichen Itza finds, Chakmul figures are found at Tula, the only other place besides Chichen Itza that they have been found, and depictions of jaguar and eagle warriors are found at both sites as well. Remember the jaguar and eagle warrior motif because it will tie into the Aztec creation myth we talk about next episode. But surely that's a coincidence, you say. Traveling by foot, Chichen Itza has to be about a thousand miles away from Tula for crying out loud, and at that distance in the pre-Columbian world, there's no way the imagery could be intentional, right? Well, while I appreciate your, your healthy skepticism, here's a list of other imagery that is shared with Chichen Itza, Tula, and Teotihuacan. The Tulud Tablero building designs, boss relief carvings of warriors with snakeskins and feathered helmets, atlatls, and butterfly breastplates, colonnades that once supported thatch roofs, 15-foot carved warrior columns, a skull rack placed in between the temple and the ball court, uh, astronomically aligned with uh, the Zenith Passage or all of those cities, and of course, there's victims of human sacrifice. The last one is pretty disappointing, but not unexpected. In an article published by Cambridge University May 7th, 2021, it was relayed that a team had found the bones of children in Tula, Mexico. The grisly find fe featured the remains of at least 50 people, 24 of whom were children, which may be the first evidence that the Toltec civilization sacrificed children as well as adults. The bones, dating from around 950 AD, were dug up at the Toltec capital of Tula, and the condition of these remains indicate that the children were decapitated as a group. 
Upon further inspection, the children were in poor health at the time of death, which in conjunction with the decapitation could be evidence that they were sacrificed to Tlaloc. Remember, Venus is important to this culture, and the Venus Tlaloc warrior is at the heart of the belief system. There is also competing evidence that they were offered to a god called Shipe Totek, who was a god of renewal and goldsmiths. Now brace yourself for this. The name Shipe Totek means Our Lord the Flayed One, and his offerings were skinned alive so the god could wear the skins as a garment representative of the new skin that covered the earth each springtime. It was not uncommon for the Aztecs to offer children as sacrifice to the warrior and agricultural gods as they saw a strong connection between the deities. So it's not implausible that the Toltec did the same because, as we know, the Aztecs emulated the Toltecs. We'll talk about some of the truly horrible evidence at the Temple Mayor in Tenochtitlan in the later Aztec episodes, but for now, it is important to note that it was the Toltecs that came up with the festival Tlacate Tehuitl, which involves child sacrifice and was meant to prevent famine in the land. The name of the festival literally means human strips, and I will leave you to imagine that awful scene all on your own. The common belief now is that Chichen Itza is Tula's sister city, even though it's a thousand miles on foot between each city. However, if you were to fly across the Gulf of Mexico, you're only looking at 733 miles, which would take one and a half hours by plane, five and a half hours by helicopter, or as much as 17 hours if you were a pigeon, according to distance.1km.net. I don't know why they parsed it out as plane, helicopter, and pigeon, as if those were the only ways to get across the gulf, and I am not certain if by pigeon they mean if you were a pigeon or if you were being carried by a pigeon, though that would have to be one very large pigeon. If you recall, we earlier said that Chichen Itza has architectural similarities to Teotihuacan as well, and this is not surprising because Tula, or Tulan, was founded just after the fall of Teotihuacan, around the 8th century AD at a site called Tula Chico. When cities collapsed, the people didn't just politely disappear. They had to go somewhere, and with Tula being close by, well, it's easy to envision a bunch of Teotihuacano refugees surging into Tula, looking for the necessities of life and a fresh start. Tula Chico was then abandoned for unknown reasons. Uh, roughly 150 years later, and Tula Grande began its ascent. Tula Grande is the main site, and it's where all of the action took place. So if I say Tula, I'm not referring to the earlier settlement. Also, for the sake of clarity, I will use the term Tula instead of Tulan to refer to the Toltec capital from here forward, though the names are interchangeable. Tulan simply means the place of reeds in Nahuatl, and Tula is the modern-day name for the city. Tula also features these mysterious 15-foot basalt-carved warriors, and to keep things interesting, I will offer you a multiple-choice style fill-in-the-blank, so pick one of the answers provided. These warrior statues are called the Atlanteans, and they are given that name because A. They face the Atlantic Ocean B. They are tied to the lost city of Atlantis C. They are named after the god Atlas because at one time they were load-bearing structures for the temple roof, much like Atlas is said to hold up the earth, or D, all of the above. Now, those who are multiple-choice test-savvy know the answer is almost always C, and they are correct. The Atlanteans were named after Atlas by the archaeologists who found them. These statues are located on the top of the Pyramid B complex in Tula, 
and they are the same soldiers we see at Chichen Itza and Teotihuacan. These figures are carved from salt, and they feature snakeskin and feathered headdresses or helmets representing the feathered serpent. They are armed with the preferred weapon of the Teos slash Toltecs called an Adel Adel, which, which is a device used to increase the torque when spear throwing, often enabling the spear to reach speeds of nearly 100 miles an hour. There is also a quiver of short spears for use in said device, a butterfly-shaped breastplate on the front, and a sun disc shield fastened to their backside. If you are jumping up and down at home and screaming, that sounds just like the Venus Tlaloc warriors from the Teotihuacan episode, you get a gold star for retention, and possibly enthusiasm as well. For me, the truly exciting part is that the Pyramid B complex at Tula is also known by another name, the Temple of the Dawn Lord, which is that 21-letter god named Tlaquitzcalpantacutli that we first talked about in the Teotihuacan episode. Why is that so exciting? Because there's just no way to call any of this coincidence. All of these similarities are because it is one culturally bound people across approximately 3,000 years that lived, developed their beliefs, and influenced each other at these sites. Even their chief god, the Feathered Serpent, goes back to the Olmec in 1600 BC, making that one particular deity at least 3,000 years old. I find things like that remarkable because there's undoubtedly any number of ways that their culture could have just died out due to famine or disease or war, but an unbroken streak of cultural development across different ethnic or tribal lines that lead us from at least 1600 BC to 1521 AD is just wild to me. So if Teotihuacan was founded around 600 BC, Tula at about 400 BC, and Chichen Itza at 600 CE, I would bet there are countless other undiscovered ruins of other cities that have the same lineage. It's not likely that these people only founded three cities in 2,000 years, is it? Now, the distance between Tula and Teo is only about 50 miles, but the distance between those two cities and Chichen Itza is about 1,000 miles, so there's plenty of land in between the cities for these people to have founded at least a few other cities, even if they were deemed stopping points along the way, right? And how it all ties together or what it all means to have this string of culture across the ages are questions that really need answering. So why don't we look to the Toltecs and see what they wrote about their rich history? Surely there are epic poems or codices, or maybe even a short history carved into a temple wall. Well, there isn't, so we can't read about any of the Toltec adventures. Sadly for us, the Toltec left behind no writing system whatsoever, and records from neighboring tribes were all lost to the ravages of time or to their history being eradicated by their conquerors. And as much as I would like to pin it on the Spanish, it was actually a different kind of conqueror. So, who could have overthrown this great and glorious people with their powerful warrior tradition and nearly unlimited talent at craftsmanship? Excavation of the city shows that it was burned at the end, and I have seen a couple of versions of this explained. One says it may have been a societal collapse, like so many other Mayan sites that slowly break down as the resources and good fortune finally give out. In this version, the only buildings that were burned were administrative buildings or official buildings like the council house. The thrust here is that the people of Tula took their frustrations out on the city's failed leadership as they were forced to find new places to live. One could readily imagine angry denizens walking past a governmental building and taking out their grievances on the symbols of leadership that had failed them so badly. I could see that happening. 
The other is that in a moment of poetic justice or karma, the Toltecs were overrun by the Chichimeca and the city was burned wholesale, similar to what the inhabitants of El Mirador had to endure as they were overrun by the Teotihuacanos. Since the Toltecs are descendants of the Teotihuacanos, therein lies the rub. I can hit you with one other explanation that no one of sound mind subscribes to, but here we go. The Atlanteans were stone carvings that represented the space-traveling people known as the Toltecs. The helmets on their heads were not snakeskin and feathers. No, no, no. They were actually space helmets that protected them as they traveled the galaxy, and the addle addles at their signs are actually laser guns. The butterfly breastplate and the sun shield are actually a jetpack spacesuit combo that they used to fly around for day-to-day -day missions, like maybe going to Walmart or something. The burned city, well, that's from the mothership that collected them and blasted off from the Earth, charring everything near its thrusters as they went back into space. This is kind of a mashup of some of the more ridiculous things I have seen online about the Toltecs, but uh, they're actually out there. And don't forget about the New Age Toltec wisdom pushed by Don Miguel Ruiz that many celebrities subscribe to as well, like Bill Clinton and Madonna, Oprah, Ellen DeGeneres, and the cornerstone of sound reasoning, Britney Spears. Though most of them wouldn't make it 10 minutes in the Mesoamerican world if they were to teleport there, they all seem to uphold this purported Toltec teaching, so let's just see what it's all about. At the heart is something called the Four Agreements, and they are as follows. One, be impeccable. Two, don't take anything personally. Three, don't make assumptions. And four, always do your best. Now, having worked in food service all my life, I could easily see a glossy sign with these tenants listed on it, taped to the outside of a cooler door and a group of workers gathered around their manager, having a pre-shift meeting regarding these topics and how they could incorporate them into the guest experience. Anyway, the belief system is fine and all, but it has nothing to do with Toltec culture, regardless of what Ruiz says or the fact that he got AARP to promote his work. Yes, while some of these are the silly ancient aliens type account of the Toltec, and the absurdity exists in many different forms, I just happen to cobble together some of the more ridiculous items into one big tapestry of crazy for you. And I hope that you see these rapid bursts of nonsense for the tableau of Toltec Tourette syndrome. It really is. Now that we've all had a little chuckle, let's get back to reality. Circling back to the dilemma of no written records, not unlike Don Ruiz, the Aztecs decided they would rewrite history of the Toltec and subsequently their own because they were the most powerful nation in the world and they could do it. The Aztecs envisioned that they could gain prestige if they could somehow link themselves to the Toltec lineage and then promote them as having been superior craftsmen and warriors. Indeed, the Aztecs needed a better history than their real history as wandering ne'er-dwells that no one wanted and that prior to their ascendance they had to live on the outskirts of any village or city they came to because of their unruly and barbaric ways. It's interesting to note that since they were relegated to live in swampy areas and fend for themselves, that's where they learned to make chinampas, or little islands of clay and mud that over time they could build dwellings or grow crops upon. This practice would eventually give them ability to build an entire city called Tenochtitlan, which is the sprawling Aztec capital, in the middle of a friggin' swamp on Lake Texcoco. Though their beginnings are a bit inglorious, and I can see why they would change their history, it makes a big mess for us latter-day people trying to interpret the true history of either the Aztec or the Toltec. So, how did they change it? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
In the 15th century, the Aztecs, under the direction of a man named Tlacalel, began their journey to create a rich and storied history befitting a regional power that they had just become. Tlacalel was intensely focused on reforming the Aztec state and religious practices. He even turned on chance to be uh, the Aztec ruler and gave to it to his brother so he could take on this power behind the throne type position and complete his dream of giving the Aztecs a respectable origin story. According to sources, he ordered the burning of most of the Aztec books that recounted their ancestry, religion, and history, and burned any referential materials from conquered tribes that spoke of the true origins of the Aztecs. He then rewrote the history to reflect a better image of the Aztecs, and voila, a new history was realized that created a common awareness for the Aztecs. However, it came at the cost of essentially wiping out the entire history of the Toltec. It's like the ancient Egyptians chiseling off the face and name of unpopular rulers from monuments in hopes that no one would remember them and that their existence, that their existence would be simply forgotten. Anyhow, now everyone in Mesoamerica was singing the same song of Aztec history, albeit a song of Tlacalel's imagination, and the Toltecs were assigned the role of Aztec predecessor. This rewriting led directly to the belief that the Aztecs were always a powerful and mythic nation and wiped away forever their true history of being a bunch of ragamuffins that were as unwelcome as a pox throughout most of history. Another part of this rewrite was that since the Aztecs could now purport a direct lineage to the Toltec people, a whole king's list had to be created to show a succession of leadership that lead, led backwards from the 15th century Aztecs all the way to the Toltec people. It's like the begats in the Bible linking Adam to Noah. In lieu of reading Tlacalel's fictitious king's list for you, I will instead read an amusing review of the biblical begats from the Sydney Herald uh, website in Sydney, Montana. In Genesis 5, we hit the begats. The begats are a listing of generations from Adam to Noah. It is repetitious and boring, as in each generation it says, someone was born, someone had kids, they lived a while longer, and then they died. Now, you know that whoever wrote that piece had already given their two weeks notice and was just mailing it in until their last day. After completely fabricating this king's list and presumably to add a dash of authenticity to their claims, the Aztecs then proceed to loot Tula for whatever treasure and artwork they had, in some cases chiseling it off the walls of temples and brought it back to their city-states to claim as their own. Integrity is obviously not their strong suit, though I do applaud their thoroughness. While I'm kind of having a go at the Aztecs, this kind of stuff is not uncommon throughout history, and there is even a term for rewriting the past to suit your needs. It's called historical negationism, which is the denial or falsification of a historical record meant to distort or deceive. Think Holocaust deniers or lost cause of the Confederacy, that kind of stuff. Other civilizations have gotten into this boat as well, like the Nazis with the Aryan nation nonsense, or much less egregious Rome and her founding myth. You don't really think there was a Romulus and Remus suckling on a she-wolf now, do you? But even in the Roman example, the reader knows it's a myth. It's not meant to be taken literally. The Romans were actually not unlike the Aztecs, a bunch of awful people doing awful things, mistrusted by all who knew them and resorting to treachery to get their civilization going. Just read about the rape of the Sabine women if you want more context on the beginnings of Rome. But imagine telling the Aztecs that you don't buy their origin story and that you know it's a later construction of someone's fantasy. I think you would be reduced to human strips pretty damn quick. But every civilization needs something to cling to, to look back on and say, we were meant to be, 
and a proud heritage is just not possible when you are always seen as being from the lineage of dogs. Now, we've spilled over quite a bit into the Aztecs, though we were supposed to be talking Toltec in this episode. But honestly, our Toltec knowledge is a little lacking, and we can't be blamed for that. But we now know who can be blamed for that, and we can only understand the Toltecs through the eyes of the Aztecs. What I will do is a top 10 summary of the Toltec uh, for what we do know, at least as far as I have been able to find. Number one, Tula was the capital city of the Toltec and was just a pretty average city all the way around in terms of size, planning, and monument building. There is no evidence of an empire, and most scholars now believe it to have been more of a kingdom than an empire. Number two, the Toltec were craftspeople, but nothing has been found that really separates them from your local junior college art graduate. Nothing as lowly as a macaroni sweater, mind you, but it was not a city of Michelangelo's either. The Atlantean statues are perhaps their best work, but they are most notable for mass-produced ceramics. Number three, their chief products were simple pottery and metalwork and presumably a powerful army in the Teotihuacan tradition. Their society favored militarism, and there may have been opportunities for upward mobility within the society. Number four, while Quetzalcoatl was revered throughout all of Mesoamerica, the Toltec had a special reverence for the deity and may have been the founders of his cult. Number five, no written records have survived. Not one tablet, no codex, nothing inscribed upon walls, temples, or even graffiti. There is no hard evidence that shows that they could write, though to me it seems implausible that a Mesoamerican civilization at this time could function without writing. However, it bears mentioning that Teotihuacan had no system for writing either, and they were pretty impressive. Number six, human sacrifice was a mainstay of their culture. Man, woman, child, the obsidian blade does not discriminate. Number six, they were prone to drought and famine, and given their location, they could only grow enough food to sustain themselves each year with little to no surpluses, even in a good season. That's a setup for failure. Number eight, they did have two rivers nearby, but they made the same mistake as the people in Kaminalhuyu some 1700 years ago, and they divert their precious waters uh, to irrigate farms just to keep from starving. Now, that makes a new problem of very limited water supplies, so you can imagine an entire city of people teeter-tottering between hunger and thirst all day, every day. Number nine, the city either succumbed to rebellion or foreign invaders, was burnt to some degree, and later abandoned by its inhabitants around 1150 AD. Number 10, there is one significant written record attributed to the Toltec people. That doesn't mean that they wrote it, it's just that the story is attributed to them, and it's regarding the legend of Quetzalcoatl, and to my understanding, the account predates the Aztecs' rewrite history, so let's end our show recounting it. The Legend of Quetzalcoatl There are multiple versions of this story, and one has to decide which version they will go with. I will be recounting the version put forth by Franciscan friar and priest Bernardino de Sahagún, who took the time to learn Nahuatl and spent 50 years compiling the history and culture of the Aztecs into works that could be read by the world. He even translated parts of the Bible into Nahuatl to teach the Aztecs about Christianity. He is known by his posthumous moniker, the first anthropologist. 
He is really pretty remarkable, and here is what he translated from the Florentine Codex about Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl, he was the wind, the guide and clearer of paths for the rain gods, who are the masters of the water. And when the wind rose, the dust itself began to tremble. There was a great din, and it became dark, and the wind blew in multiple directions at once as it thundered. And the people cried out, Quetzalcoatl is a wrathful god. I've read that passage dozens of times, and I get the chills every time. It's very clear, the sense of awe, the sense of terror, the sense of reverence that comes from those people about their god, Quetzalcoatl. Anyway, I will relate this account uh, of the myth and then give you a choose-your-own-adventure style ending to the story. The story begins with a battle between the priest god Quetzalcoatl, who co-rules Tula with Huemac, the mortal king and secular ruler of the city. Uh, the the god that they are battled against is called uh, Tezcatlipoca, who you will remember as Smoking Mirror, the god of night, sorcery, and warriors. Now, Quetzalcoatl is regarded as a wise and benevolent ruler who is holy and pious, but does require some human sacrificing from time to time. For their faithfulness, Quetzalcoatl rewards the citizens of Tula with prosperity and other great qualities. Tezcatlipoca doesn't like human sacrifice and doesn't like Quetzalcoatl or his little pet Huemac, and he certainly doesn't like this little urchin colony at Tula, so he plots to discredit their leaders and destroy the people of Tula. Tezcatlipoca decides to knock out the biggest guy in the room first and targets Quetzalcoatl. Using his sorcery, Tezcatlipoca gives copious amounts of pulque, an alcoholic beverage made from the fermented sap of the agave plant, to Quetzalcoatl and tricks him into thinking it's a drink that will make him younger and more powerful. I too have often told myself that when I have overserved myself, so I won't judge too hard. It turns out that Quetzalcoatl loves the drink very much, to no surprise, and soon invites his sister, who is a priestess, to come drink with him. Now, neither one of these gods should be engaging in drunkenness, it is not befitting for a god, uh, but they both eagerly submit to it. Also, neither one of them should be engaging in fornication, especially with each other, but they eagerly submit to that as well. Right now, the ancient Egyptian gods Osiris and Isis are shrugging their shoulders, saying, I don't know, I don't see a problem. Well, the rest of us do, you nasty little deities. Anyway, the people reject Quetzalcoatl after learning of his transgressions, and interestingly, there's no undue shame put upon his sister, which is what normally happens in patriarchal societies. The Toltec slash Aztec may have had a more just way of seeing things, as it was Quetzalcoatl who bears the brunt of the blame, not the woman. I'm just saying, we could probably learn something from that. Now, having engaged in these two acts of drunkenness and fornication, Quetzalcoatl has shamed himself and eventually must leave the city, but Tezcatlipoca is only getting started. Tezcatlipoca takes the form of a lowly slave-like person called a Huastic that were often sacrificed wholesale by the Toltec slash Aztec, and Tezcatlipoca tricks Huemac's daughter into falling hopelessly in love with him, and they marry. It's a complete outrage in the town, because their beloved princess is now married to this low-life schmuck. In response, Waymac tries to send his new son-in-law, Tezcatlipoca, off to battle and deliberately stacks the deck against him. Tezcatlipoca, remember he's disguised as this swastic slave type person, is sent to the front lines with an army composed of dwarves, slaves, and the physically disabled, in the hopes that he will be defeated and killed. Waymac even instructs the group to abandon the swastic in battle if things get even the slightest bit bad. 
but Tezcatlipoca, being the god of warriors and such, absolutely smokes his adversaries in a one-sided battle and come back to Tula as a war hero. Back at Tula, Waymac is now obligated to reward his son-in-law with a festival due to his great recent victory in battle, and the whole city turns out for the event. During the festival, Tezcatlipoca begins to play the drums and through his powerful sorcery, entrances the people of Tula with song and dance. Tezcatlipoca now conjures up a small being that dances in his hands and the people of Tula go wild. They trample and crush each other to death just to get a glimpse of the tiny dancing being. The dark sorcerer then causes the people to throw themselves off nearby cliffs and the continued pounding of drums makes the ground tremble as bridges fall apart and buildings collapse onto the citizens of Tula. At this point, they begin to snap out of it, and the people of Tula kill the human form that Tezcatlipoca had adopted, but their troubles continue. Immediately, the body begins to rot and emits a smell that begins to kill everyone who has the misfortune of breathing the foul air. The people try to move the body out of the town, but the body becomes heavier than any one person can move, and they use countless lives to attach ropes to the body, whereupon, with concerted efforts of prayer and brute strength, they're able to drag the body away. As they drag away the body, they pass their granaries, and all of the food for the city immediately rots from the odor coming off the body. Now, the city is in ruins. There are untold dead in the streets. The food is all ruined, and panic begins to set in. Waymac and Quetzalcoatl do what any great leader would do, and they just up and leave. It makes me think of that SpongeBob meme, I'm going to head out. So in 947 AD, they both leave, and Huaymac leaves lives out his days in a cave in Chapultepec, about 200 miles away from Tula. Quetzalcoatl heads east with the promise of his great return on a future date. You can almost hear the townspeople call out to him, Thanks a lot, big fella. We'll be sure to update you on our progress cleaning up this big friggin' mess. The year slated for the great comeback tour was one read, if you're keeping score. Now here's the choose-your-own-adventure part, I promised. These are my two favorite endings to the story, so choose which one you like the best. Either Quetzalcoatl sailed away on a raft made of live snakes to the east, vowing to return on the specified day, as relayed by Bernardino Sahagún, or when he reached the shores of the Gulf of Mexico, Quetzalcoatl set fire to himself and rose to the heavens as the Venus morning star, vowing to return on a specified day. Now this might be more Aztec influence because it jives with their creation myth, and we'll talk about that on our next episode. Either way, you can't go wrong unless you're one of the people left behind in Tula to live through this disaster. Then things have definitely gone wrong for you. Ah, but here's the twist of the Obsidian Blade, if you will, and a splash of foreshadowing about the Aztecs. A few years prior to the Spanish invasion, an oracle from Texcoco advises Montezuma of a vision he had regarding the empire. He says that the Aztecs will be defeated by enemies from the east and will be wiped out forever with Montezuma as their final leader. Now let's get in Monty's sandals for a moment. So there's this legend of Quetzalcoatl's big return coming up in a few years, and your right-hand man for contact with the other world says disaster is on the horizon. It seems that Montezuma is staged for the ultimate one-two punch. 
The year 1 read translates to the Gregorian calendar as 1519 AD, which is the same year that Cortes lands on the shores of the Yucatan and he lands to the east of the capital of Tenochtitlan. Bear in mind that by this time, the Maya have already gotten their heads handed to them by the Spanish, so the oracle might have just been relaying the message that technologically superior foreigners are here and they ain't friendly. But the prophecy of Quetzalcoatl's return was made a long time before 1519 AD, somewhere closer to 1000 AD, so there's still a whiff of the mystical to the prediction. How crazy is it that Cortes lands the exact same year that Quetzalcoatl is supposed to return? And how unlucky can the Aztecs get? Anyway, what would you think if you were in Montezuma's sandals? Well, not knowing that your savior god and your mortal enemy are one and the same, my thoughts would be to welcome Quetzalcoatl as warmly and generously as possible and to try to get him to help me defeat the invaders from the east. As I swirled my hot chocolatl in my golden chalice, I would vainly entertain the notion that with my powerful Aztec army and a powerful god unleashed on the battlefield at the same time, maybe, just maybe, I could change the prophecy with my cunning genius and just a little bit of luck. But unbeknownst to Montezuma and the Aztecs, who they thought would be their most important ally, would actually be their executioner. Join me next time on Mesoamericana Plus when we dive into the Aztec world and learn more about their true origins, lifestyle, and ultimate demise at the hands of the Spanish. Be sure to check out the website at mesoplus.net, that's M-E-S-O-P-L-U-S dot N-E-T, and see some of the updates regarding the Toltecs. I will own the fact that I completely failed at updating the site for the Mayan post-classic period, but I am back on track for this and for future episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and please consider donating to the podcast through PayPal. Your donations go to acquiring new equipment and research materials for the show and are very helpful to keep me current with the most recent information available on the Mesoamerican world. Goodbye for now, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Mesoamericana Plus.